The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now, I'm very excited about this next guest for a number of reasons. Um, number one, I've always wanted to be a farmer, and it no seems kidding. like... I'm getting a little closer with new technology. Number two, I'm from Ohio. He's from Kentucky. And I feel like, <laughs> you know, a lot of states that are next door to each other have rivalries. I think Ohio and Kentucky really complement each other well. Uh, Dwight Yoakam was from Kentucky. He moved to Ohio. You know, Sturgill Simpson was from Kentucky. He moved to Ohio. Uh, and a lot of people have moved the other way around as well. Jonathan Webb joins us right now, founder and chief executive of App Harvest. Um which so Jonathan set set us up as to what your company does. As far as I understand it, you basically are bringing tech into farming and really solving some ESG problems as far as food waste is concerned as well. Yeah, Paul, Matt, thanks for having me. And yeah, I'm a huge Sturgill Simpson fan, and uh, yeah, he he he, <laughs> he sales both Kentucky and Ohio well. That's right, and we're talking to all those uh, East Kentucky artists now about this, but. Um, yeah, I've been in D.C. the past couple of days talking with senators on both sides of the aisle. And, and what we've messaged is, you know, controlled environment agriculture, is an, it's inevitable. It's really the third wave of sustainable infrastructure. You look, 20 years ago, it was renewable energy. Uh, the world finally caught on. Ten years ago, it was electric vehicles. The world finally caught on. Uh, and right now, you can look at the, you know, at the U.S., and we are incredibly vulnerable as it relates to, to food security in this country. You know, California, drought-stricken, wildfires, the southwest of the U.S. is drying up. You know, CBS just did a big piece on uh, the Colorado River drying up. You know, I, I'm standing in coal country, uh, eastern Kentucky, and we've talked about mining fossil fuels for decades. What we've not talked about is we're mining our water. We're, we're, we're extracting our water uh, to a point to where you know our, our aquifers are not refilling. So uh, App Harvest, we're building some of the world's largest controlled environment agriculture facilities. Uh, we grow a fruit and fruit and vegetable with 90% less water uh, and get 30 times more more yield per acre uh, using technology. So Jonathan, describe for us or explain to us what is a controlled environment agriculture. Yeah. So I think of a you know a Anything you grow indoors uh, and control the environment. Okay, so I'm thinking us, about we're, weed, we're, by the way. <laughs> I'm thinking just about marijuana, basically. But uh, well, well, it, we... it, that 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 has helped push the industry uh, technology-wise forward. You look at LED lights, hydroponics. Uh, the, yeah, hydroponics. You know, climate control, humidity controls. So you know, there, there's several companies out there. We're one of them, and. You know, I, I personally don't see anybody as competition. This problem is so big, uh, and we, as as you know, the U.S. are not nearly moving fast enough. Uh, the U.N. has predicted 
We need 50 to 70% more food by 2050, and we would need two planet Earths the way we currently grow that food. We've got to use technology to grow more food with less resources. The the point being, you can grow a lot of other stuff besides weed. I mean, this is not a little Pineapple Express barn. You're talking about big indoor farming operations that can feed masses, right? Yeah, that's right. And and no, we're we're growing fruits and vegetables. We're, We're definitely not growing the other stuff. Uh, we're, we're growing fruits and vegetables, uh, but yeah, it's ma- we're at scale. It's massive. So to put this in perspective, our first facility in Moorhead, Kentucky, is 2.8 million square feet, uh, 60 acres under glass, uh, one of the largest facilities under construction in the world in the middle of COVID is what we built here in Kentucky. Uh, we have four more facilities under construction. Uh, we just went public on the NASDAQ under APPH and raised $500 million dollars. You know, to build out our series of, of indoor uh, facilities here uh, here in eastern Kentucky. So, Jonathan, explain to me your business, per se. Do you go to existing farmers and say, let us kind of help you get to the future? Or what, what, what is exactly your day-to-day business? Well, unfortunately, the American farmers already lost to Mexico. And when I've met with everybody on Capitol Hill last week, that's what we were talking about. Uh, we import most of our fruit and vegetables from Mexico because the U.S. is slowly shutting down fruit and vegetable production. So, you know, our competition really at App Harvest, it's it's the imports from Mexico. Four billion pounds of tomatoes were imported from Mexico last year. Uh, that was nearly 1.2 billion pounds uh, about 15 years ago. So, uh, we're App Harvest is building the facilities. We're operating the facilities. Uh, we're selling to Wendy's, Walmart, Kroger. Got it. Okay. Uh, some of the, so, so we're selling directly to some of the largest grocers and, and retailers uh, who see the, the vulnerability in their supply chain. How hard is it to get the human? I mean, you've got the tech side covered, and robotics, I know, are all are all up and working there as well. But you still need humans to pick the crop, right? I mean, how do you get strawberries off the vine? You've got to have people working. Well, we have robotic harvesters, but we have a lot of people. And look, I'm in I'm in eastern Kentucky, not only because I'm from the state here and I love this state, uh, but we had some of the hardest working men and women in the U.S. powering our coal mines through yep. the Industrial Revolution and on. We hired five, you know, for I watch the news every day. Right. People say people don't want to work, and I laugh. We had 8,000 people apply to work at this company, yep. 550 people working now. So we have a workforce here that's going to yep. drive high-tech uh, forward for the years to come. In eastern uh, Kentucky. That's a great story. Jonathan Webb, founder and chief executive officer from App Harvest. All right, Matt, when I went on my West Coast marketing trip when I was a sell-side analyst and you go to L.A., you have to have two lockdown meetings, and then you can book the rest of the day in L.A. One was Capital Group, and the other was Trust Company of the West, TCW. Just monstrous. Today, we're joined by Brian Whalen, Group Managing Director for TCW's Fixed Income Group. And why did I have to get that meeting? $253 billion in assets under management. Brian, thanks so much for— Plus the nicest guys. Yeah, yeah, you know, my well, my media guy on the equity side was a great guy, and I uh, still keep in touch with him. So, um, always a fun meeting to go into to see the folks at TCW. Brian, I'm looking at the ten year here. I got one point four four percent. If I'm a fixed income geek, and I say that nicely, uh, like you, where do I go to get some yield? Boy, 
well, first of all, thank you for the nicest introduction I think I've ever heard. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it, it's pretty hard. I mean, you talked about the tenure at 1.45%. That doesn't seem to line up with, you know, equities at the all-time highs. And, you know, and, there, and there's a story behind that. But, you know, looking for yield, I mean, look, you know, within fixed income, the, the defined the high-yield bond market, generally speaking, the, the highest type of yield you can get, 3.75%. I mean, that that's what you get for a generic high-yield portfolio. So, um, the Fed has, uh, you know, and, and the fiscal uh, side of things has done their job to, to flood the economy with money, uh, you know, suppress interest rates and have, uh, you know, investors scrambling to, to put any type of, of yield in their portfolio. Sometimes, I think, regardless of, of the risk they're, they're, they're taking on the underlying uh, credits. So what's going on? Um, why are we seeing yields dump down to 144 now and – how does this turn around if not the Fed's hawkish, you know, uh, change in tone? You know, I think first I'd say, remember, you know, we don't have a, a U.S. capital markets. We have a global capital markets. Uh, and you think about the things going on around the world right now. So first of all, you know, obviously the, what's been leading the, the news and the economy and the markets for a year and a half now is COVID. And We've got the Delta variant going around, and, and while we may not really see it here so much, it is affecting other parts of the world. Um, also remember that you know, 1.45% sounds really low to you and I. You look at the developed world out there, 1.45% looks really cheap. Uh, you know, maybe Australia, New Zealand, places like Singapore, slightly higher. But you, know, you go to Germany, you go to Switzerland, you go to Japan, you're talking about a 10-year yield of zero or less, you know, minus 20, minus 25 basis points. Uh, and then you know, back, back here to the U.S., I think, and you focus on the fundamentals. One, I think, you know, investors are starting to, you know, realize that the economy, you know, it may not accelerate in the second half of the year as quickly, you know, as they were anticipating. Instead of adding hmm. a million jobs a month, we're going to add maybe six hundred, seven hundred thousand a month. So that might be slower. Uh, and then, you know, finally, most recently, you know, the Fed, the Fed just told us, you know, they said, look, you know, we may let inflation run hot for a little while. But we're not ready to turn in our inflation-fighting badge. Uh, and so that's why you saw, you know, you saw this flattener. You saw long-end rates come down, you know, as the Fed kind of let everyone know that, you know, they're not going to let inflation get out of hand or they're going to try not to. And you saw short-end rates go up, meaning that, you know, the, the, the market just started to price a, a slightly higher probability that the Fed may move a little bit sooner with regards to interest rates than the market was expecting just prior. So, you know, you put all this together and then a few other factors, and it, it, I think it does explain why we're under 1.5%. Dude, you had me at negative 20 points on the Bund. I, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> yeah, 145 sounds cheap now, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but my question then, and I I, uh, I just want to get your take on this, the dollar is important then. If I'm a Euro mm. investor, you know, um, and uh US you know from the perspective of a german the US budget is like out of control you know 120% right. gdp that's very undeutsch is that <laughs> does that bother you at all i think i think that's a problem for another day to be quite honest with you you know I, we could go on and on about the levels of debt in the economy on the corporate side and as you said on the fiscal side and the long-term ramifications for the dollar and whether that will retain a reserve currency or whether others will kind of share that, that, that title. I think in the you know, short to intermediate time horizon, given what the Fed just said, you know, the dollar looks fairly stable, if not will continue to strengthen a bit versus these other currencies. And we've seen that reflect in the bond market. You know, it, almost, it feels like for, for months now, you, know, you, you come into, you, know, you wake up, in the United States, and you hear about all this buying of U.S. bonds, whether they be treasuries or corporate bonds from overseas, 
um, because of just like we talked about before the tenure, just how cheap they look. You know, remember we're not just starved for yield; the globe is starved for yield. And every night, these investors from you know from outside the U.S. they come in and they're poor dollars in here because even when you adjust for the currency, it's still the best place to find some yield. I feel you, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us. Brian Whalen there, Group Managing Director, Fixed Income and Portfolio Manager at TCW, talking to us about what's going on in markets. By the way, as he was talking, I saw the yen. Um, yes. Well, the dollar jump yeah. against the yen. You can now buy 110 yen for your dollar. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. Let's get over to Everett Millman. He's a precious metals specialist with Gainesville Coins. He's going to talk uh, to us about commodities even more broadly. We'll get into copper and Bitcoin as well. But I want to focus in on gold first, Everett. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Um, why is gold not performing the way... Um, well, look, we've got rates that are coming down, which I would think means gold goes up. The 10-year over the last three months it goes from 175 to 145, and we're seeing gold um, that has done a whole lot of nothing at 1763. What's, what gives? Right. I think part of that is that risk appetite seems to be elevated right now. That's siphoning off some of the normal safe haven demand for gold. Uh, but also, we're seeing seasonality kind of return to normal for the gold market. The summer months are almost always unkind to gold, and the only reason that hasn't been reflected in the price the past two years is some unprecedented circumstances with the early stages of the pandemic in 2020 and some fluctuations in the repo market in 2019. So I think that's one of the main factors, and also, as you pointed out with rates, um, I think this is a knee-jerk reaction, an overreaction even, to the hawkishness by the Fed, uh, because if you look at the 10-year yield, it actually fell in response to that. And with inflation rising, that means that real rates, the federal funds rate minus the rate of inflation, is still rather negative. So you would expect that to be a favorable environment for gold, but I think that uh, risk sentiment and kind of the summer doldrums of seasonality are the main factors holding back gold right now. Everett, I wonder if, you know, Bitcoin has have, is having an impact on how gold is trading. You know, the smart folks uh, around crypto are trying to convince me that uh, Bitcoin is a store of value, and that's kind of typically how folks have viewed gold. How do you think Bitcoin is impacting, if at all, uh, kind of how, how gold is trading? I do tend to agree that it is, drawing away some of that store of value appeal of gold into the crypto market as it's essentially the m most appealing alternative to the dollar right now. And although we have seen the dollar been rising, that's been reflected in the Bitcoin price that we've had this significant pullback. But as you pointed out at the beginning, that gold has been kind of moving sideways, hasn't done a whole lot. 
we don't often see that from Bitcoin. Uh, the volatility is certainly a feature of Bitcoin, and I think that appeals a lot to most investors that if they want to get some exposure to something that is anti-dollar or outside of the dollar, then they'd rather have that greater upside with something like Bitcoin rather than gold, which is fundamentally more boring and sort of a conservative investment. Also, Bitcoin may be a little bit easier to use in a catastrophe. You know, I like uh, the idea of both because uh, I'm looking forward to some post-apocalyptic world when all we have is gold, guns, and water, right? But you're not going to get 100 cents on the dollar for your gold, and Bitcoin you can just zap over to somebody else. Isn't it, you know, in the end days going to be easier to use digital currency? That's a fascinating point, and I, I do agree that I think a little bit of both is ideal because although it's true that the digital nature of Bitcoin makes it much more easy to use in those situations, um, if we're talking about kind of a, a end-of-time scenario, you would think that some of our digital and Internet capabilities would perhaps be true. offline true, or off-grid. Yeah. So I think that the physical nature of gold sort of is the backup plan to that. Could but be I'm a right red dawn could be a Red Dawn kind of moment, you know, when the Soviets invade and <laughs> occupy the U.S. and we all have to huddle up with our teenage friends in the Colorado mountains. <laughs> Who knows? Right. Who knows what could so happen? <laughs> Everett, aside from gold, give it, where, where do you see the best, I guess, value or opportunities here in the precious metal space? Well, the precious metals, I think, are sort of mixed right now. Silver seems to be tracking gold, but yeah. it is much more sensitive to the industrial metals, to what's going on in the broader economy. And although we have seen um, some encouraging manufacturing numbers, particularly in Japan and Germany, um, these potential setbacks with the Delta variant of the coronavirus may kind of crimp that potential. Um, although it's considered a semi-precious metal, I'm also looking at copper because some of the uh, impediments, some of the roadblocks to higher copper demand that we've seen are, are pretty well understood. The crackdown in China, where Beijing is limiting its exposure to um, commodity inflation, and also in the housing market, the fact that new home sales are dropping, that's a major source for copper demand. But um, Chile is far and away the world's number one producer of copper. And right now their legislature is considering legislation that would impose pretty steep taxes on their copper miners. So if that were to come to pass, it is estimated that uh, about 1 million metric tons of copper output from Chile would be in doubt. So on the supply side, I think that um, copper does have some potential headwinds and that these supply concerns right. would mean that prices won't fall quite as far as many are expecting. All right, Everett, thank you so much. We always appreciate chatting with you, getting in getting the latest on precious metals. Everett Millman, he's a precious metal specialist at Gainesville Coins. Let's talk tech. Let's talk cybersecurity, chip shortages, all that good stuff. Nicola Marini, chief technical officer for EY, joins us. Uh, Nicola, thanks so much for joining us here. Love to get your thoughts on, I'm thinking cybersecurity. We've seen a lot of ransomware hacks, and I was just going to ask myself, does it corporate America or just the C-suite in general get it that they need to spend money to protect their systems? What's the latest? Yeah, so hi, hi guys. Good morning. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. 
Uh, yeah, I, I, exactly. I think it's a very bizarre situation, actually. On one side, you know, cybersecurity is on the front page uh, everywhere, right? And then on the other hand, we're not seeing uh, the same type of, um, you know, reaction in terms of the, the prioritization of, um, of investment for cybersecurity. So I will summarize it as a sort of a, you know, on one side there is alarm, you know, effectively almost panic in some, in some elements. And as well, at the same time, you know, with sort of an important sense of resignation and say, you know, this is something that sooner or later is going to happen to us and we're going to sit and wait. So we had done, for example, a survey very recently and we see that, you know, for uh, 70% of the CEOs that we have interviewed, you know, data and technology is, uh, I consider, you know, the base of their future growth. And at the same time, only one third of the same CEOs see cybersecurity as a, as a top priority. So it's kind of puzzling. Well, I guess the ransomware attacks are the alarm sounding and, and, and maybe they're going to start ramping up spending. By the way, I love... Uh, Ernst and Young, the word for the business that you're in in German is Wirtschaftsprüfungsgesellschaft. <laughs> Wirtschaftsprüfungsgesellschaft. That's one word, 32 letters. I just thought it was for what? I didn't know that. <laughs> it's uh, professional services, auditing, oh, okay. taxes, financials, all rolled up into one. <laughs> and obviously, EY is one of the biggest in the globe. And, you know, you advise businesses from mining to real estate, tech, you advise finance and government and automotive, the automotive industry. So I wanted to ask a little bit about the chip shortage. Um, this affects more than just cars, obviously, but they're most important to me. How soon do you expect companies to be able to solve this issue? Yeah, I think the time horizon is still probably between one and two years still. Uh, the, because there, there are systemic issues, right, that actually led to that problem, almost like a, a perfect storm of, I think, a little bit of an obsolete way of planning, right, very localized for, uh, for some companies where they look at the supply chain in components versus looking at the supply chain as a systemic, as a system. And so that led to, you know, compounded with the pandemic, maybe, you know, very conservative um, estimates around potential growth, et cetera, all contributed to a massive, massive clock. This is one of the, almost in a lifetime, you know, case study for, for pool planning in a way. So explain to us, Nicola, the, you know, digital twin concept and how that might be impactful here yeah. as we think yes, about this global please. chip shortage. What are digital twins? Yeah. Yeah, so the digital twin is effectively like a, the digital representation of a system, right? And so it started with IoT in the manufacturing space where, you know, you could build, for example, I think General Electric was one of the first ones to actually launch the concept where they were able to build the turbine in a, in a computer simulation. And so using that, you can understand, you know, what are the impacts of changes in some of the variables that, the, that this particular system was experiencing. So if you take that concept and you actually evolve it from a very specific subatomic process, right, into the whole system, I think you'll be able to capture, you know, the signals that you're seeing in the system itself and be able to react, even if you don't know exactly how things will play out, but the ability through technology and the gathering of data to understand the correlation across the variables that you're seeing and how they evolve in time, I think at least raises those red flags that in the case of the chip shortage, you know, nobody has seen coming. What's the uh, what's the competition like? I'm always interested to hear about um, the big four and 
you guys are truly the heavyweights of the world. What's it like coming out of COVID, competing with the likes of KPMG, PwC, Deloitte, and EY? Yeah, it's a, it's a fierce competition, but you know I think you are seeing actually very strong growth across uh, across the board for for the professional services business. Okay, so uh, lots of new things happening in the in a very dynamic world, right? New regulation, new things, and so there is uh, an evolution of the marketplace. I think that is uh, is rewarding. Right. Robert. Hey, Nicola, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it, Nicola Morini, Chief Technical Officer for EY. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.